Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's the middle of the Atlantic hurricane season, and so far it's been a quiet one for us in New England. Will that continue? We'll hear predictions from NBC Connecticut meteorologist Ryan Hanrahan in just a few minutes. Now, September 9th is fast approaching. Some towns and some residents will remember that day 80 years ago when the hurricane of 1938 struck New England. More likely, many of us remember Superstorm Sandy in 2012. Since that time, how have coastal communities prepared for the next destructive storm? And if you live inland, should you care how shore towns have prepared? We'll pose these questions and more to a Yale ecologist and landscape architect and also hear from the First Street Foundation coming up. Now, you can join our conversation, too. That number, 860-275-7266. Email us, where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. I want to welcome back to the show Ryan Hanrahan, again, Chief Meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is called On Ryan's Radar. Ryan, welcome back. Hey, good morning, Lucy. I understand meteorologists have forecast this as a quiet hurricane season, especially when we look at the Atlantic Basin region. Why is that? Well, there's a couple of reasons for it, Lucy, um, and there's sort of uh, very large-scale sort of global circulation patterns uh, that can lead to depressed hurricane activity in the Atlantic. Uh, one of the reasons is enhanced wind shear. Uh, there's a lot of wind in the upper levels of the atmosphere, across the tropical Atlantic, and that can effectively shear apart a tropical storm or hurricane. It literally lops the top off the storm. It's very hostile for a tropical storm or hurricane to develop when there's a lot of wind shear. The other reason is we've got a lot of dry air over the tropical Atlantic. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, in the tropics, how's there dry air? But actually, uh, the wind is blowing off the coast of Africa, and you have a lot of dry air off the Sahara that is basically sort of sitting on top of uh, 10, 15, 20,000 feet above uh, the tropical Atlantic. And so that is also hostile uh, for tropical storms and hurricanes to develop in. And we also have colder than normal sea surface temperatures out where most of our tropical storms and hurricanes form. So if you add all three together, you have a combination that's really hostile uh, for tropical development in the Atlantic. When you talk about cooler surface temperatures, uh, tell us more about what you mean. And uh, when we think about that, uh, we hear for, uh, I think now, three or four years that our planet um, is uh, at record heat. So how's that possible with climate change? Can you walk us through? Yeah, of course. So uh, the temperatures in the uh, tropical Atlantic have been about a degree Celsius cooler than average. So it doesn't seem like a lot, but hurricanes are very, very fickle. They really need sea surface temperatures at or above 80 degrees or so. Um, and so we're right near that threshold. So early in the season, it was just a little too cool to sustain uh, tropical storm or hurricane development in what we call the MDR, which is the main development region. It basically stretches from the west coast of Africa over toward the Caribbean. Uh, so that that's the reason why sea surface temperatures are so important. And the fact that we were just a little cooler than average um, really hurt at least the beginning part of the tropical season. So the bigger question is, well, how is that possible? We hear about global warming, climate change, and sea surface temperatures are generally fairly warm across the globe. And this is one of those things. When, when you have climate change, it doesn't preclude 
say, for example, Connecticut getting a colder-than-average winter. That can still happen. It's just not as likely. So while warmer than normal sea surface temperatures are generally the rule across the globe, we've gone through a month or two where there one specific area in the tropical Atlantic has not been that warm. Um, and in fact, it's been cooler than average. So it can happen, but we're generally loading the dice for warmer and warmer um, sea surface temperatures and warmer ocean waters, but not this particular year. Uh, when we talk about these factors uh, causing a, a quieter a hurricane season for the Atlantic Basin, I know, I know you're, you're uh, fully aware, especially on Twitter, people at this time of year also are curious about uh, what the winter is going to look like. Do, do any of these factors mean that we could have a quieter storm season in a few months? Well, that's a good question. One of the reasons why we have enhanced wind shear over the tropical Atlantic is because we have an El Nino that's developing. So uh, your viewer, your listeners have probably heard of El Nino before. Um, and basically what that is, is warmer than normal water temperatures in the tropical Pacific. So now if we go to the other side of the globe, we look at the Pacific, the water's starting to get warmer and warmer and warmer. And that is normally a harbinger of an El Nino. Uh, and so El Nino can impact our winters here in Connecticut. They tend to be a little stormy. They tend to be wetter than average. Um, but in terms of snowfall, it's still too soon to stay. Um, I generally try to stick to the next 10 days with forecasting, uh, but there are Good other idea. experts that, that, look out, that look out farther and farther in advance. So I'd say over the next month or two, we should start to have a better idea. But um, an El Nino winter tends to be an active one around here. Ryan Hanrahan is chief meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. Again, his blog is called On Ryan's Radar. Uh, we're talking about this uh, quiet hurricane season for the Atlantic Basin. And we're curious about uh, you know, what the next few months will hold, Ryan, because um, we know that uh, hurricanes, uh, especially in Connecticut, we think about them uh, hitting August, September, October. So it's still too soon to, to say if, we're gonna, if it's going to remain quiet through the season? Yeah, of course. I mean, so we've had so far five tropical storms in the Atlantic and two hurricanes. You probably haven't heard of any of them because they've been out in the middle of nowhere um, in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, but the forecast from the uh, researchers at Colorado State, which is generally the gold standard that we use for hurricane and tropical storm forecasts, is for uh, five hurricanes to form, so three more than we've had already, and 12 tropical storms. So it would be an additional seven. So when we may, when I mean, I don't make these long-range tropical predictions, but other people do. The National Weather Service mm -hmm. does, uh, some researchers at different universities do. Um, one of the big caveats with all of this is that all it takes is one. All it takes is one poorly placed, powerful hurricane, like a Category 4 heading toward Miami, or a strong hurricane heading toward New Orleans, or one heading right up the East Coast heading toward New England. It can be a very quiet season in the Atlantic as a whole, but that doesn't necessarily tell you whether it will be a quiet season in our backyard. So you still have to keep your guard up, and you still need to be you know, aware, especially if you live near the water, of what's going on in the tropics. So our hurricane season generally peaks in mid-September, um, and so this is something that we're going to watch, and we certainly can't rule anything out, even though it looks like on the whole, mm -hmm. it's going to be a little quieter than average. Meanwhile, uh, the Pacific, uh, not so quiet. Uh, we, a lot of us were tuned to the news with Hurricane Lane and what was going to happen with Hawaii, and, and that has gone out to sea, but they've still seen record rain there. Yeah, they did. Uh, the Big Island had more than 50 inches of rain, so uh, they had an incredible amount of flash flooding um, on Hawaii from Hurricane Lane. And that was always the biggest threat with Lane was the flooding. It looked like the storm was going to weaken fast enough that it would spare Hawaii from 
um, uh, strong winds and a lot of storm surge, but heavy rain certainly uh, did produce on the Hawaiian Islands. And this is another example of how, you know, we tend to think of things very myopically. We look in our backyard. We care about hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. That's what, that's what we're looking at most of the time. But we have to remember that there's a whole, you know, rest of the globe where they're getting hurricanes. In the Central Pacific, uh, where Hawaii is, it's been one of the more active seasons on record. So while we're sort of not getting much here, other places uh, in, the, in the world are certainly uh, looking at quite an active season. Meanwhile, we're stuck in this heat wave for the next uh, few days. When will that end, Ryan? <laughs> well, it uh, looks like late Thursday we get a cold front to come through to break the heat. But today and tomorrow is going to be tough, especially for the kids and the teachers back in school. Uh, it's looking pretty uncomfortable. Ryan Hanrahan again, Chief Meteorologist, NBC Connecticut. Ryan, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Lucy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, you can read Ryan's blog on Ryan's Radar. We'll link to it on our webpage, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now, after the break, we're going to hear from an ecologist and landscape architect, and we're going to learn more about the plans shoreline towns have to prepare for rising sea level and the next big storm. Do you live along Connecticut's coast? Since Sandy, how has your town or city prepared for future flooding. Are you worried about the future of your home? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're learning more about whether Connecticut communities have plans in place to deal with future severe storms, sea level rise, and flooding, among other challenges. Do you live along the shore? How have you prepared your home for potential flooding? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, Connecticut will lose 24,000 acres of land to sea level rise by 2080. That's an estimate by the Nature Conservancy. Do you think your town or city has done enough to planning to prepare for this? Connecticut Magazine, in partnership with the New Haven Register, asked each shore community about its plan. For more on that, joining us by phone is Eric Offgang, senior writer at Connecticut Magazine. Eric, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Uh, good morning. So we understand in your reporting with the New Haven Register, uh, you looked into uh, climate change-related issues such as sea level rise. Uh, that uh, statistic that I mentioned from the Nature Conservancy, that might surprise a lot of people. Um, what did you find out when you, when you reached out to municipalities um, you know, and when, they, when we talk about the sea level rise? Um, is this something that's in, uh, the, in front of them or something they're putting off to the side? Um, you know, it, it surprised a lot of us, that number, uh, just how high the rate was in Connecticut. And we, when we reached out to, we reached out to pretty much every uh, coastal community, which included those on, on the Sound directly, as well as um, communities further inland that could be affected by rising seas. And what we really found is that it wasn't a number that necessarily surprised the majority of those communities. They were aware that seas were rising for the most part. They saw, you know, flooding in places they'd never seen before. Um, and so they were really sort of, um, you know, they weren't surprised by the question, in other words, which um, I don't know if we were surprised by, but we, we weren't sure what to expect. Um, so it's, the rising seas are not really news to communities on the coast. How they're addressing it, there is uh, different, 
different depending on the town. Mm -hmm. 2080 is a long time away. When we look at uh, sea level rise uh, year to year, what are some of the, what is the uh, State Department of Environmental and Energy Protection, uh, what are their estimates of why this is an issue that, that shoreline communities should be taking seriously? Well, yeah, so it's, it's rising, according to the DEP, about 2.58 millimeters a year. And they're, um, they're saying that's changing the fish water, uh, the fish in the waters. There's more uh, warm water fish than there have been in the past. And it's just um, something that really isn't going to just affect the uh, coastal communities. It's something that um, when there are severe weather events, it's going to be worse, potentially, if, if nothing's done to sort of shore up the communities. Um, there's more flooding, more property damage, more public property damage. So it, it's something that really affects the um, the whole state in terms of taxpayer uh, money. Uh, when we talk about all the different shore communities uh, that you and the New Haven Register spoke with, uh, tell us about um, some of uh, the observations that town officials um, have remarked on, specifically in Greenwich, for one, uh, where they're seeing the effects of sea level rise. Yeah, in Greenwich, you know, they're seeing roads flooded that uh, weren't flooded in the past. They're seeing um, areas, there's a, a threat to their, at the time of the story, there was a threat to their uh, sewage treatment plant or, or potential threat in the future. So they're really seeing the effect of this in a lot of communities. Um, in Essex on the Connecticut River, there's an island that, you know, used to be something like, used to be more than 20 acres and is now under 10 acres. So it's something that really is happening and, and towns are sort of seeing at every severe weather event. Not to say there wasn't flooding in the past, but they're seeing increased flooding and that um, is expected to increase. And that's why some of the towns are taking, you know, pretty extensive steps to uh, uh, combat, combat that. Uh, Greenwich, for instance, has, um, they're requiring new construction be built a foot higher than even uh, FEMA recommends. So they're adding a foot to the elevation set by FEMA because they're accounting for um, expected sea level rise. Uh, something that struck me in the article, um, there's a quote from um, the Greenwich's uh, Conservation Commission director uh, that uh, Denise uh, says that they have flooding on a monthly basis in places they never had flooding before, pointing to a parking lot at Greenwich Point Park where floods during the full moon high tide now where it didn't previously. Uh, so you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, one option that Greenwich and, and, and other towns like Guilford are putting in place. Uh, are there some towns that you were surprised uh, that may not be as active in the mitigation plans they're putting in place? Everyone had, you know, everyone was aware of the problem. Um, there were towns that, for one reason or another, seemed uh, much more on top of it. You mentioned Greenwich, Westport, uh, Stamper's invested a ton of money going back to the 1960s and sort of building uh, flood barriers and, and things of that nature that they say, you know, save millions in, uh, in Sandy. Um, but there, there were towns that simply, um, just didn't have a budget or were on the early stage, in the early stages or had begun planning in the aftermath of Sandy and Irene when they saw kind of just how bad things could get quickly. Um, Bridgeport, for instance, really stepped up its planning and, um, after the, 
you know, extreme weather events that took place a number of years ago. In your reporting, uh, you reveal that there's no real comprehensive approach or strategy that's being implemented by these uh, coastal municipalities. Um, when you see a plan that's not put in place in certain areas, is funding and staffing really the issue for some towns? Yeah, I think throughout Connecticut, um, pretty much regardless of the community, obviously some shoreline communities have, have many more funds than others, but funding is a big issue, both always a big issue, a big taxpayer um, and a big election issue, you know, both at the local and state level. So um, towns that, um, you know, I think cost came up as a, as a factor in pretty much every town we spoke to. Some said, you know, despite the cost, we're committed to doing this. Others said, we know we need to do this, but we don't have the funds right now. And we're looking to find the funds. And, um, and there is some working together between towns. It's very, um, it can be a very unique pro- problem, unique to each sort of landmass in each community. But there are also some common solutions or some, some ways towns can work together in terms of planning and funding and best practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking specifically about um, leaders in specific towns, but um, in your reporting, are there any uh, state lawmakers that are uh, making this uh, an important issue, or has that been kind of put off to the side uh, now that it's been several years since Sandy, and there are other more pressing issues in front of, of the, the state lawmakers with uh, our um, uh, constant budget deficits? Well, yeah, we didn't get a, a great sense. We were really looking at the sort of hyper-local local level, so we didn't get a great sense about where the state is on these issues. There certainly was no uh, windfall of help coming from the state, um, you know, for the, for the reasons I think you mentioned. Um, but the, uh, you know, state officials we did talk to from the DEP were, again, very aware of the problem. Not uh, No one, which I think was encouraged, I mean, no one was really dismissing this as sort of, not an issue or something that, you know, is, is only going to affect people in the future. It was something that was very clearly happening now to communities that were seeing the effects of sea level. And they were at least, at the very least, acknowledging that something had to be done. They were in varying levels. Some people were already working or some communities were already working on taking steps to prevent it and had been working on that for years. Others were still in the early stages of assessing and, and looking to you know, the state and other federal um, resources for funding. Eric Offgang, again, is senior writer at Connecticut Magazine. Uh, last year, Connecticut Mag, in partnership with the New Haven Register, examined how coastal communities are preparing for sea level rise and future flooding. We're going to tweet out a link to that article. Eric, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. Joining us now with more on how municipalities are planning is Dr. Alexander Felsen. He's an ecologist, a landscape architect, also director of uh, the Urban Ecology and Design Lab at Yale, associate professor at the Yale School of Architecture, joining us from the studios at Yale. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Lucy. So we were hearing a little bit from Eric about how there's no real uh, comprehensive approach that municipalities are taking. What is your response to that? <clears throat> um, I think that's true. Um, there are incentives and there are opportunities that uh, <clears throat> communities are working on. I think the uh, there are coastal resilience plans that are being developed um, across, you know, um, on a municipal municipality by municipality basis. Uh, there are hazard mitigation plans that are being uh, refined and improved, um, and there are ways in which those planning documents are uh, being in- linked back to the plans of conservation development that are. Um, the, um, the, the planning documents, the master plans that are functioning as living documents for towns. 
You mentioned coastal resilience. That's a phrase that many of us have heard, especially since uh, these uh, more recent storms. When we say that, what exactly are you talking about? So basically, the way that, that we've urbanized across the Connecticut coast uh, exposes towns to risk with potential flooding. So there's really the concern of uh, large storm events that are um, more of a uh, of a um, an impact, you know, one-time impact versus sea level rise, which is a slow uh, incremental process. So towns are thinking um, about these two distinct factors, um, flooding risk as, as well as planning for long-term management to deal with um, chronic flooding. Uh, and the flood risk, the, the, the uncertainty and the risk of, you know, an event like Sandy happening again is, is probably the main driver for decision-making and choices at the town level in terms of trying to, um, trying to adapt to avoid some of those risks. Mm-hmm. Um, you've worked to identify what you call zones of shared risk. So talk about that, and and is that more effective than approaching this as a neighborhood issue? Yeah, the, so Connecticut is unique in some ways because it has patches of risk. The glacial history created uh, ridgelines and low-lying pockets of land, and we've developed on those. And so uh, really when you look at the physical topography and the potential for flooding, you know, in, um, in the combination of um, investment and infrastructure, there are these. There are patches of risk that don't that do not necessarily follow a neighborhood uh, organization, and so if you think about those patches of risk and develop strategies to deal with particular risks or, or issues associated with those patches, I've argued that that's a be- that may be a better approach to try to resolve um, or to try to get homeowners behind investing and uh, in, in collaborative efforts with with towns. We hear about the short-term fixes, like elevating roads or houses. Uh, but when you talk about working with towns, it's harder to sell long-term planning? It is hard to sell long-term planning, partly because of the political structure in municipalities and partly the you know, in generational patterns of home ownership and, and, and um, kind of property decision-making, decision-making that um, private property owners are, are you know, thinking about. But it, the way that we work is we look at long-term risks and long-term flood potential and then work backwards to look at near-term strategies that resolve uh, issues today but also consider and um, don't make worse some of the issues in the future. Uh, one of the towns that is thinking about uh, its future long-term is Guilford. The town planner is joining us now, George Crawl, And you can join us, too, especially if you live in a shoreline community. That number, 860-275-7266. George, welcome to where we live. Oh, thank you. So uh, you're, again, the town planner for the town of Guilford. So you have a community coastal resilience plan. What was the impetus for developing this? Um, that's a good question. Um, we started work on this project before Sandy and Irene. Um, we have a long history in Guilford of uh, substantial interest in coastal resource protection, and many of our residents are actively involved in that. We we formed a relationship with uh, an organization called the Nature Conservancy, which is a national, I guess, an international organization dedicated to preservation of natural resources. They have uh, they had an interest in Guilford. They were looking for a community to partner with to do coastal resilience planning. And uh, so Guilford was in, at, the, at the right place at the right time, so to speak. Um, we had some help from uh, the other person on the line here right now, Alex. Uh, hi, Alex. Hi, George. Uh, he was also involved in this project. So... Uh, 
it's a combination of those circumstances, and then Irene and Sandy come along and focused everybody's attention in a much more uh, dramatic way on these kinds of issues. It's interesting, George, you know, we had this uh, spate of frequent uh, ex- extreme or severe weather events, and then now it seems like we're in a lull. Does that mean, does that make it harder for you when you're thinking about this long-term planning to convince town residents that this is something that, that uh, should be taken seriously? Um, well, it depends on what you mean by taken seriously. As Alex was just saying, there's a there's a built-in reluctance uh, to think long term or to act long long term at least our focus has been uh, as you've been talking earlier about the short term solutions uh, particular uh, particular you know, for elevating roadways that serve coastal neighborhoods and then um requiring and con- and uh, incentivizing people to make improvements to their properties to better protect them in terms of uh, sea level rise and coastal storms, the kinds of things you were talking about, uh, one foot above sea level projection for new building, that's those types of regulatory changes. Those are what we've been focusing on primarily in Guilford. We we have invested substantially in road improvements to several of our uh, coastal neighborhoods. Um, that's been the easy part in some ways, although it's there are a lot of resources involved and costs relatively uh, it's relatively easy compared to some of the long term things in the long term. I think the most important thing that we've that that's happened in Guilford as a result of some of the long term uh, i guess I would call them visions that we that we created as uh, Alex is very familiar with this since he's the kind of the author of some of these visions um, pointing to uh, what's likely to happen 50 or 75 or 100 years from now to our coastal area is given people a sense, uh, in my opinion at least, uh, that the future is, can be very positive. Uh, many of these, uh, many of the discussions that we've had and many of the original reactions to this whole phenomenon of sea level rise have created uh, sort of fear and trepidation about some future that's uh, where we're all underwater. Uh, and it's uh, it's a it's a negative future. Some of the things that we've focused on through these visions is painting a picture, if you will, of uh, coastal communities that are still very desirable places to live. Certainly, a lot more water than there is now, but in a, uh, nevertheless, something that's that we can work towards in the long term. Um, that's that's positive. Not just telling people that they have to retreat away from the coastline. But telling people that, in fact, they can live uh, near the coast, it's just going to look a little bit different than it does now. Maybe a lot different, certainly maybe a lot more water. Maybe you live on an island instead of on a beach, but um, it still can be a very desirable community, if you will. Mm. Dr. Alexander Felsen with Yale, do you want to respond to what George, uh, again, the town planner from Guilford, has been uh, talking about? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the real, uh, just to say that, uh, you know, the Guilford Coastal Resilience Plan was the first in the state and um, and George was a leader, I think, um, at the municipal level to guide that process in, you know, an intelligent and sh- uh, fair way. And I think that was fundamental to the success of that process. And it was a real team effort and included academia and uh, professional um Professional, so Melinda McBroom was involved with the Nature Conservancy and, and, and Yale. Um, 
I think it's to, it's true. I think you can reframe the um, the process of adaptation as a, an economic development opportunity and um, and as a recreation and um, amenity development strategy and and think about um, access to the coast as as an added value and other you know so so that you're layering on um, multiple benefits as part of the um, adaptive management strategies. Uh, and I think with Guilford, we basically, with our planning proposal, we were proposing ways of adding housing development um, while um, while retreating in uh, or, or um, shifting housing in certain areas uh, that were um, higher risk um, and developing uh, additional public amenities. And, and I think that approach is critical for um, for coastal resilience because it creates a proactive a framework, it, it creates a, um, a local value, and it allows for development uh, and investment to support the, um, the adaptation so you're not just um, spending money on, on, um, on, on reducing the flood risk. George Krull from uh, the town of Guilford, you know, is it challenging when you're thinking about this planning and having these conversations with uh, town residents about deciding which houses stay or, or which houses ha- must, must go because of, of what's happening with high tide and frequent flooding? That would be a challenge. That's not, a, that's not something that we're tackling directly in Guilford right now. <laughs> I think the, I think the, the relationship between um, a positive vision of the future uh, and, the, and the way the community reacts to the short-term solutions is important to, to understand. If you have, a, if, as Alex was talking, if you have a positive image of what the future might look like, um, then that enables people, I think, to understand and accept the uh, changes, even though some of them might be expensive or painful that you're trying to implement in the short term. People will continue, and there's no evidence that they're not, uh, that they don't want to live near the shore, especially uh, in communities like Guilford. People continue to want to live near the shore, uh, and the challenge is to find the places where it will be reasonable to develop new, uh, new communities, new neighborhoods in the shoreline area and at the same time uh, devote resources to protecting those places where the, uh, it's likely to, they're likely to be higher waters in the future. One of the things that we sort of struggled with and we're still struggling with is the availability of resources to local governments to make uh, infrastructure improvements along the shoreline that are, that are sensitive to the environmental challenges that we have, uh, so-called living shoreline improvements that would still protect shoreline resources, but protect them in a more uh, compatible way, an environmentally sensitive way, than the old-fashioned uh, systems of building walls and, and, and large, uh, expensive structures. In fact, in Guilford, we, we, we have a plan, I think Alex worked on it a little bit, that um, will enable us to create some living shorelines out in the low-lying water areas that can protect uh, environmentally sensitive tidal wetlands, mudflats, and uh, uh, river estuary systems from the erosion and the loss of uh, resource that will inevitably accompany um, higher waters. So more federal and state resources to local governments to help implement these more sensitive uh, 
environmental infrastructure improvements is, a, is kind of the challenge for the future, I think. Alex, can you uh, get into those funding challenges? What resources are available to municipalities from uh, the federal level and state? Uh, I mean, recently, we uh, the state of Connecticut was rewarded, uh, sorry, awarded uh, funding through the National Disaster Resilience uh, Grant. Uh, so a fair amount of that is funding is going towards um, Bridgeport, uh, in particularly the South End, uh, which also re- uh, received prior to that through through HUD uh, a $10 million grant as part of the Rebuild by Design program. Um, so there's some funding that's been coming in federally uh, through these these um, uh, these programs. $8 million of the uh, National Disaster Resilience Grant is going towards planning for uh, New Haven Fairfield counties, and that's being run through CIRCA. Um, which is uh, a deep appointed um, program at, at UConn that focuses on climate uh, resilience and climate adaptation. Uh, there are, uh, Circle also has some uh, funding, or has had some municipal funding that's provided uh, planning dollars mostly for uh, municipalities to um, develop proposals and strategies that are, um, that are uh, resiliency oriented. Uh, and the uh, the hazard mitigation plans and the plan of conservation development and the uh, sorry the uh, the coastal resilience plans are intended to go after um, or to to frame or position the municipalities to uh, potentially receive additional funding through FEMA. There's also the community rating systems, which is uh, which there are several towns in Connecticut that are part of the CRS program, uh, and that's another um, source of um, reduction on insurance costs. Uh, with the, the new administration, Alex, um, are you concerned about the type of resources that will uh, trickle down to municipalities? I think that there there are definitely concerns. I mean, there's not really enough funding uh, at all now to go towards you know um, towards uh, funding these kinds of projects. I think that there's uh, the way that George was talking about the planning process. Um, I think is critical because uh, when you do when you have enough time to do planning and analysis, and when you are thinking long term and acting in the near term in intelligent ways, then you're get you're you're putting resources at the municipal scale and potentially in relationship with the state, uh, particularly around things like um, state-owned roads or other um, state-owned uh, land to try to co- coordinate better um, the investment strategies for long-term benefit. Uh, and I think that's a critical step that, or that's a critical approach that Connecticut, Connecticut should be doing is, um, is aligning or coordinating uh, investment strategies where there is funding and where, there, where it's dealing more with, for example, maintenance and management of uh, infrastructure in intelligent ways. Mm-hmm. I want to take time to thank George Crawl, town planner for the town of Guilford, Connecticut, for, for joining us for part of the conversation. George, thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to go back to, again, Dr. Alexander Felston. He's joining us from a studio at Yale University. He's an ecologist, landscape architect, and associate professor at the Yale School of Architecture, also director of the Urban Ecology and Design Lab at Yale. Um, you mentioned Bridgeport and, and, uh, and federal money being allocated for a project there. Can you talk us about what you were able to do and, and help the community uh, in terms of, of smart planning for the future. Sure. So in Bridgeport, uh, one of the things that we did there, which relates back to the living shorelines that uh, George had mentioned in Guilford, which I think is a critical um, uh, contribution or area of focus for the state of Connecticut, is uh, thinking about how to construct uh, coastal land in ways that makes it resilient and functional for um, storm storm abatement to you know for for uh, an, an erosion control. So we built bioretention gardens with uh, working with um, Seaside Village in the south end of Bridgeport over a three-year period, 
Uh, it was a very local process, and we built it prior to Irene and Sandy. So we planted and constructed these bioretention gardens, which are essentially like wetland gardens. Uh, we designed it as experiments, so we set it up in a way where we could test and evaluate uh, the water holding capacity of alternative soil management um, applications across the swales or the bioretention gardens, and we test for um, the, for how those uh, this uh, green infrastructure functions over time. Um, <clears throat> once Irene and Sandy hit, we had to replant. So it shows the kind of adaptive management challenges associated with uh, developing these living shorelines and the need for testing and evaluation to inform how we build these landscapes. Uh, the, uh, following that event, we, there was a, uh, a large planning process called Rebuild by Design um, that, was, uh, that, that developed planning strategies to try to conserve or manage some of the, um, the flood risks in the south end. And because the south end is fairly low-lying uh, and there's Metro North, which is raised, um, that runs along the upper portion of the south end, when flooding occurred during Sandy, it really created an, a, um, an issue of um, uh, people were trapped in the south end, and there's very limited amenities there. And it was, it's, a, it's a serious concern, I think, for the state in terms of um, uh, emergency m management. So uh, we, were, we developed... Um, berming proposals and developed a large community process where there was a um, pretty um, extensive engagement strategy to bring in and discuss uh, risks and opportunities and challenges. And it's interesting when you look at the South End because there's uh, historic housing there that fall that's in locations that make it difficult to negotiate a berm strategy. And you're also dealing with large landowners like the University of Bridgeport and PSENG and others who are, um, you know, who one has to negotiate strategically with given the amount of land they own and the control they have. Uh, and you're um, dealing with low to moderate income home, uh, homeowners and issues like, um, you know, how to redevelop in the floodplain uh, and, and negotiate with DEEP um, around uh, the permitting and regulations. Before we head to break, I wanted to ask you more about solutions to protect uh, native species and what um, kind of uh, impact uh, we're seeing with some of the, uh, the strategies that you've mentioned. So th there are, uh, yeah, the, the challenge, um, so, so one of the challenges that Connecticut faces is with sea level rise, you're getting uh, potentially marsh migration. So, you know, marshland locates at different particular elevations um, given the tidal regime. And as um, more, as sea levels rise, you're getting uh, the particularly high marsh and, and tidal freshwater marsh that, um, are being encroached on by uh, low marsh. And so you're getting a kind of um, squeezing out effect and so the, some critical questions are how to facilitate uh, marsh migration over time. Part of that has to do with thinking about how upland forests are going to adapt. Uh, another is thinking about how, to, how management around urbanized areas where there is, it already exists you know, impervious surfaces and development and how those may be um, modified or adapted to accommodate uh, 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 wetlands over time. The, the green infrastructure that we built in, in Bridgeport was something we're calling coastal green infrastructure, which is, doesn't follow the, the typical green infrastructure strategy of drainage in a 48 to 72 hour time frame. So it holds water for longer periods, which is something George was mentioning. We're looking at ways in which you can construct landscapes in coastal areas that hold water and manage water and have some habitat function while also having a drainage value or, or infiltration value. 
Dr. Alexander Felsen is an ecologist, landscape architect, and associate professor at the Yale School of Architecture. He's joining us today from a studio at Yale University. We're going to take a quick break, and coming up, we're going to talk about uh, how sea level rise has a direct impact on property values. What can homeowners do? We're going to hear more from Dr. Felsen and also from the First Street Foundation after the break. And you can join us, too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about climate change and how sea level rise will dramatically reshape Connecticut's coast. With us from a studio at Yale University in New Haven is Dr. Alexander Felsen, ecologist, landscape architect, associate professor at the Yale School of Architecture, also director of the Urban Ecology and Design Lab at Yale. We just heard about some strategies municipalities should put in place to deal with flooding. But what about the homeowner? Joining us now by phone is Sheree Lewis-Gruss, a geographic information system or GIS specialist at First Street Foundation. Sheree, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, first off, if you could briefly tell us about what exactly is First Street Foundation. Sure. We are a nonprofit, and our mission is to educate citizens and elected officials on the risks, causes, and solutions to sea level rise and flooding. Um, First Street just recently uh, had a, a study done looking at uh, the effect of, of sea level rise on property values. Specifically, what are we seeing here in Connecticut? That's right. Um, we found that in Connecticut, we've already experienced between 2005 and 2017 over $915 million in total property value loss for the state, and 14,700 buildings have been affected already whether it's their roads or actual property by frequent tidal flooding. So given those numbers, what are some strategies for current homeowners? Well, there's a number of things individuals can do. First and foremost, they can go to our tool at floodiq.com, and they can get a very detailed, personalized property report. And in this report, I should say, which is free to download, you'll find out a number of statistics. Um, You will see the potential resale value impact on your home that frequent tidal flooding takes. You also will see um, future flood projections. And we we made these flood scenarios by looking at sources like NOAA, USGS, the Army Corps, and we put all that data into our model and we came up with four different um, flood types for Connecticut. We have frequent tidal flooding, highest annual flooding, and we have Hurricane Category 1 and 3, and the extremely rare event, Hurricane Category 4, projected up to 15 years into the future. So from 2018, we have it projected to 2033, and there the homeowner can see um, how much of their property will be flooded, what percentage, how deep does the water go based on this inundation scenario. We also will see your neighborhood's flood projection, because honestly, even if you don't have flooding on your individual property, if you can't drive out because your roads are inundated, then that's a big hindrance, as your listeners in Connecticut know very well. Um, Beyond that, what you can do to protect your individual property is you can dry-proof your home, you can wet-proof your home, and that involves allowing and planning for water to move through your home but also to move out in the event of flooding. You can raise the important infrastructure up. For instance, your HVAC systems, your plumbing, your electric meters, all of these are very, very vulnerable in the basement and close to the ground level. If you can raise them up, if flooding comes up, then your major infrastructure for your home will be protected, saving you lots of money. You can also get flood insurance. Uh, 
right now FEMA projects that individual flood insurance premiums are between eight and $1,200 a year, which is not insignificant, but it is compared to um, the damage your home can incur by flooding. And lastly, you can relocate, um, which is a, a big topic to talk about. And we really urge people to contact their local officials, as all of your experts have been saying today on the segment, that mayors need to understand that um, denizens in an area are interested in flooding and they do want to know what's going on. You mentioned the flood insurance. That can be costly for some people. I wanted to go back to our our guest, Dr. Alexander Felsen. Um, FEMA has a national flood insurance program community rating system, but I understand not all coastal towns are in it. What would that mean if they were to participate? Could that help bring down flood insurance premiums for their community? Sure. That brings that uh, by getting into the community rating system, you can knock off um, one or more percentage points from your uh, insurance costs, uh, so that it's, it gives you a little bit of respite, but it's uh, it's not a huge um, rebate. Uh, the, the the flood insurance uh, FEMA has been in some ways subsidizing um, flooding along the coast, uh, and there's um, there are there's an interest in looking at how uh, flood insurance works. There's um, there's potential for private, or there's private flood insurance that's starting to move in. There's there, this is an area that's going to go through um, substantial changes over time. There's a program at the state level called State Agencies Fostering Resilience, which is a group of uh, state agencies working uh, together to look at these kinds of issues and to discuss ways in which to position the state of Connecticut more effectively and to support municipalities around um, a fl- around flood risk and flood management. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we know there's skepticism out there, uh, especially depending on where you live, about uh, the effect of sea level rise. But with tidal flooding, with the fact that uh, towns and municipalities are seeing, uh, you know, frequent flooding in areas that they never saw before, you know, is it changing people's minds that a regional approach is necessary, Dr. Felsen? Well, Connecticut uh, focus, it really has, uh, is, is, occurs or plans through a municipality basis. So there are the the COGS, the um, councils of governance that work at a regional scale in Connecticut, and uh, obviously the state um, managers who are thinking about regional issues. Uh, but a lot of decision-making happens at the municipal scale. I think there is interest in th- recognizing potential uh, regional risks and regional concerns, but I think a lot of the choices and actions are taking place locally. Uh, one of the um, the large the, the grant that we had mentioned I mentioned earlier the National Disaster Resilience um, Grant funded um, we developed a plan called the uh, Coastal Resilience um, uh, Corridors. So resilience corridors are an idea that take advantage of high ground in municipalities. They overlap with the evacuation routes that municipalities are planning around, and so it's actually a tool for investment for the state to. Um, to invest in these resilience corridor strategies um, that give access to uh, areas of flooding along the uh, coast, but that invest in ways that are more um, resilient and that support the town, uh, um, that support infrastructure and development for the town versus um, spending money in uh, housing areas that are repetitive flood loss homes. Uh, Sheree Lewis-Gruss with First Street Foundation. We were hearing about the importance of of regional approach. Um, But what about cross-state collaboration? Is that happening? It it is happening. Um, I think a great example of that is what Alex mentioned, which is the Rebuild by Design competition, which really um, exists 
you know, in localities, but the funding came from the federal government and down. Um, and really what we're trying to do as an organization is to map the entire eastern seaboard at the parcel level. And that way, not only can the individual understand their risk, but then they can zoom up and say, okay, like, let's band together and make a regional approach. So it's starting to happen, but it is it is very um, slow. And really, water doesn't discriminate against political boundaries, so it needs to happen. We just have a couple of minutes left. I want to go back to Alexander Felsen uh, uh, at uh, Yale Studio today in New Haven. Uh, earlier, we heard uh, from Eric Offgang about how this is not just a shoreline community issue. Actually, it impacts the entire state. People uh, that live inland need to care about what's happening along the coast. Are we getting there? I, I do think we're moving closer. I think there's a lot to, of work to do. Uh, I think there's a um, tremendous amount of education and awareness that's starting to grow. I think this, the, what you're pointing out is this issue of inland waterways or inland flooding risk, as well as kind of climate adaptation strategies for the state of Connecticut, not just the coastal areas. I think that um, focusing on both inland and coastal is critical, especially when you consider you know, the watersheds that are supporting drinking water for a large percentage of the population in Connecticut, uh, as well as other kinds of resources that we're managing. So I do think that balancing and considering the inland and coastal is, is essential. There, there are programs like the Connecticut Institute for Resilience and Climate Adaptation, the state, state agencies fostering resilience, uh, and other programs um, with the Nature Conservancy and the COGS that are all kind of working towards this, uh, towards towards communication and education, and towards identifying examples of uh, of case studies that or, or um, precedents that could inform strategies within the state of Connecticut. I think the, all those efforts are starting to pay off. I think in terms of providing vision and opportunity. All of that said, I think that the decision making and the and the fact that homeowners are at risk, mm-hmm. um, that those are putting pressure at local scales, which are difficult to solve. And I think it's going to take time and um, and communication. And there will be winners and losers. I think over time. Dr. Alexander Felsen, again, ecologist, landscape architect, associate professor at the Yale School of Architecture. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Also, Sheree Lewis-Gruss, Geographic Information System Specialist at First Street Foundation. We just tweeted out a link to the Flood IQ tool for homeowners. We thank you for your time as well. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Thanks to Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about the show, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.